Education is the great equalizer in America today. It opens up doors, allows for the possibilities of excellence, and is the cornerstone contributor to innovation and making progress towards advancing the next generation of leadership forward. However, in the U.S., according to my friends over at Research.com, we've got more work to do to place students on a winning path forward in America in order to maximize their potential and seize their moment of growth from an educational and personal perspective. Overall, it's estimated that American students place 24th in reading, 38th in mathematics, and 25th in science. The total average of the student's performance was 470. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development reports. Their average for American students came in at 490, placing American students' academic performance well below other high-achieving OCED academic peers. So, what's the key to curving the trend and shrinking the gap? Well, my friends over at the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence seem to be tackling this issue head on and have some innovative ideas on how to solve this very conundrum. They're on a mission to transform the concept of public education so that every student is inspired and prepared to thrive as the best version of themselves. They accomplish this by focusing on three primary pillars. Continuous improvement, student success, and student-centered approaches. Matt Navo is the Executive Director for the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence. He's got more than 30 years of experience in education. As a K-12 educator, he's also been a superintendent, an assistant principal, and he's got a wealth of knowledge when it comes to system improvement as well. Thus, making this a great opportunity to bring you a conversation about how we can inch closer to making sure that America's kids embrace technology and the future of education to become the best leaders of tomorrow, today, that they can. So without further delay, my conversation with Navo starts right now. I'm Kevin McChan. Let's have this conversation.
Solomon to welcome you uh, to the program. And I'm super excited to learn all about the uh, California Collaborative for uh, Educational Excellence, my friend. It's great to see you. And uh, thank you for all you do for uh, the greater good of education. And it's great to see you this afternoon. Thank you so very much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. As am I, Matt. And, you know, I know as the executive director of uh, the organization I just spoke with, my friend, you're all about inspiring possibilities and breaking down barriers so that a student can reach their fullest potential. So I'm wondering if you can tell me about all the great work that you do and what makes your organization so fabulous, my friend. So, you know, it, it's going to be close to home uh, for you. Back in 2012, 2011, our state lead uh, um, directors, our state board chair, and at the time, Michael Kurse for the California uh, uh, Education uh, and other educational leaders went to Ontario and they were looking for a model that uh and they found one in in ontario that would change education in california and what it was was ontario has a secretariat as you know and uh they have um those entities or those educational institutions that have to deal with the compliance of education as it sits for local educators and how they accomplish the goals and meet the needs of students but then they were they had built a model where there was a a coordinated group that really just was practitioners about practitioners. So people from the field, educators, teachers, principals from the field who worked on behalf of principals and teachers in the field, people that came from understanding what the barriers were and could help uh, design and uh, support and uh, encourage and innovate around education. And so fast forward, to 2023, we have what's called the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence. And what we do is we are 36 um, educators from across the state. We cover the entire state, 2,000 plus uh, LEAs and over 10,000 schools. We cover uh, districts that are 650,000 students in LA Unified uh, to districts that are five to 10 students. And our goal is to work alongside the State Board of Education the Department of Finance, the governor, uh, and the state and the um, uh, the practitioners in the field to figure out how do we innovate education in such a way that it can transform it, that we can break through the barriers of what keep, keeps education locked in its traditions and helps move people's thinking in a way that helps inspire them and inspire systems and inspire change on behalf of kids. And not just any kid, all kids. How do, we, how do we really help and support the work in such a way that we come into space with people and we say, you know what, there's a better way to do business. There's a better way to organize yourselves. Yes, the state uh, has goals. Yes, the state has compliance. Yes, the state has accountability. We get that. That's part of the job. That's part of the work. But that doesn't have to be the work. You can show up every day uh, with an attitude of being prepared to help your students thrive in the world. And so we, our job is to come in as a third partner, help an organization see themselves in a mirror, 
help them identify things that are barriers that are in the way, belief systems, mindsets, structures and strategies and processes that are barricading students and tethering systems down to the old ways of thinking and getting them to move outside of that. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a luxury spot for us to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm also wondering, Thons, on your definition of what it means to offer students an equitable and quality education that's also inclusive, my friend. What does that mean to you? Yeah, that you know that it's a really great question, Kevin. I'm so glad you asked it because we get mired in the vocabulary of, of these things. I mean, it's it's hard to sometimes break it down into what does an equitable education mean? What does quality education mean? What does it mean when we say every student? The bottom line is we equate that that every student in the state of California needs the options and opportunities to be successful and achieve their dreams. And as a result of that. There are things that we do as adults, how we behave, and there's systems that we organize and create that prevent students from getting what they need when they need it and how they need it so that they can be successful. So when we think about quality, we're thinking about all schools being operating at a very, very high standard, all teachers having the resources and the, and the knowledge to do what they need to do, being equipped professionally and personally to tackle the challenges that students face and their communities face every day. And when we think of equitable, we're thinking of the the system has what it needs to meet the needs of the students they they have. Not everybody gets the same thing. Everybody gets what they require to make sure that students have the opportunities to be successful and achieve their dreams. And that just means that in some places in California, there's gonna be uh, schools that need, they don't need as much. They don't need as many resources. They don't need as many uh, practitioners. They don't need as many interventions. The other places, they require an intensive deep dive. So when we think of students with disabilities, we have to think about what are the systems that we created in with good intentions that have now created inequities in the system. In other words, their inability to participate, their inability to thrive, their inability to feel a sense of belonging, their inability to say, oh, I can accomplish the goals that I want to accomplish, uh, the inability for the parents to access the system in an efficient and effective way, all of those things, when you break it down, anything that prevents a community or a family member or a student from achieving what they desire is 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 pushing against the quality and equitable education we desire, we desire to have. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm curious to get your perspective both personally and professionally on what it means to provide students with an innovative education because that has a revolving and evolving definition, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways that people are thinking about innovation. I applaud educators right now in the midst of the post-COVID pandemic. We had to get really creative educators about how they met students' needs um, from in-person to virtual. At least in our experience here in California, it was a huge transition for many. And there was lots of innovative opportunities. But when we think about innovation in such a way, we're thinking about 
things that, and we're, we're looking at districts that are the bright spots for this innovation. In 2019, there was a positive outliers report that came out that identified districts that were uh, excelling beyond uh, what people would expect them to do. And in all of those cases, they had some very, very, very basic foundational principles that they learned to operate. And it was how they structured and how they behaved. But one of those that was not uh, is not really called out, is not as as easily um, valued, was they all had a, a growth mindset. And when it came to the sense of, fa of failing, they failed forward. So they tried new things. So when we look at a bright spot right now, I, I'll just call out a district that I had a recent opportunity to to uh, visit, Lindsay Unified in California. Lindsay Unified has uh, performance-based learning. This is learning that does no longer has grades attached to it. This is learning that has no longer is defined by time and grade. This is learning that is find, defined by learning content. So if you're a second grader in Lindsay Unified, but you're reading at third grade, you're doing third grade level work. If you're a 15-year-old who's already moving into high school content, you're moving into high school content. You, you can achieve graduation requirements as a sophomore and be done and be extending your learning into college and post-secondary dual enrollment courses. These grades, Fs, are eliminated. They're gone and they're more defined as in progress for that district. Those are innovative things that happen to... Um, that work outside the boundaries of traditional thinking and really um, galvanize people to a new way of thinking and a new way of doing business that empowers students. So if I'm a student with disabilities and I come to Lindsay Unified, I'm working, I'm getting what I need, when I need it, how I need it. I can excel where I wanna excel. If I, if I, if I don't finish a class well, um, I don't get an F. I have the opportunity, I go on to the next class, but I have the opportunity to fulfill that content as, as I need to with the supports that I require. That's, that's what I would, would define as innovative and, and an example of what we're trying to do when we think about innovation. It's not just bringing technology into the classroom. Yes, innovation at, innovative at the time. What we're talking about is breaking the traditions of normal school. Our state board chair talks about this a lot, Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond, breaking the traditions of the regular school day and thinking more strategically about how we address the needs of the students when they have, when they have needs we're able to provide as educators. Yeah, and Matt, I know that uh, continual improvement and student success and uh, always being more than always being learning and a sort, a sort of sponges of knowledge is important to you at uh, the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence. So we're talking about continual improvement and progressive education. I'm wondering your thoughts on how we can continue to challenge students to reach the heights of the maximum potential, but also meeting them where they are and really tailoring their learning experiences for all, for optimum success. What are your thoughts then? Yeah, that's a great question, Kevin. That for educators, when we the the two things that uh, complicate the ability for educators to to really help maximize student success is the way they that we 
design the system to to improve. When you think about continuous improvement, when you think about the ongoing efforts that are required by an educational system to improve outcomes for students, it's an iteration after iteration. It's not a straight line. It doesn't just uh, go from, from zero to 100 over time. Uh, it porpoises. There are, there are movements within a system that, uh, yes, some things go well and some things don't go well. And when you, uh, what happens in our systems is we tend to attach a number to the success and the measure of the profession of education through which we define as a standards-based assessment or some type of school rating or some kind of accountability measure. And what that, what that tends to do for educators is it, it forces them out of uh, innovation and out of uh, a, an infinite mindset around what they're trying to accomplish for students. And it puts them into a more of a finite game where they're trying to win the game because they're trying not to they're trying to avoid the low score and we tend to do that with students as well we don't give students we tend to uh, rate students by the quality we rate their quality of them as a human being by a grade which we we know we're not going to get away from but there's but there's more important things to rating an adult and a school and a child by a score. There's more complexity involved in the way that that child thinks or the experiences that they've had. And so when we can do as an educational system, think in an infinite minded way, what do we want to accomplish? What is our vision for students when they leave our organization? And we allow students to think about, and what do you wanna become when you become a functioning adult? And constantly giving them the opportunity to assess their own learning and set their own goals and, um, uh, and determine whether or not they're being successful on the, uh, with achieving those goals. And then us as educators coming in as a partner to think about the, the scores become very much less part of the conversation. The scores are maybe a, a dipstick into progress towards, but the goal never ends. And I think what we do in education is we ruin our ability to do that by, by scoring ourselves so finitely, and we ruin a kid's ability um, to, to think in an innovative way and to be aspirational dreamers because we score them with a finite in a finite way. There are multiple measures that should be used to really assess whether or not somebody is, a, is growing in the way that we want to grow. But when we do that to kids and you see it in education, when kids are so excited about learning in kinder, first, second, all of a sudden, in third and fourth, the, the, that excitement starts to wean. And I would argue that the reason that happens is we start to attach ability scoring to them, their ability to read, their ability to do math. And we score them in such a way that they begin to think not about education as something I'm going to enjoy because I enjoy learning, but something that defines who they are. And the same thing happens in education when states do it. They define a system by, by a finite number and it ruins the ability for an educator or educators in that system to think innovatively and to be prosperous in the, in the idea that they have dreams and goals for students they serve. Yeah, and Matt, you brought up something that, that I want to follow up on, and that's capturing the imagination of students and really uh, capturing their vision, vision and eagerness to learn. So how as educators do think we can do a better job of maintaining a student's uh, sort, of, sort of imagination and eagerness to learn. 
You know, the, the, the best example I've seen is at a, at a K-8 school in the Central Valley, Fairmont Elementary School. Fairmont Elementary School did something that is incredibly innovative going back to the, to breaking the traditions of regular public school that has kept kids, uh, I would argue, more engaged and more excited about learning, kept parents more excited, more engaged, more connected to the school. And they what they did was they did something called, uh, they, they formed student learning communities from TK to eighth grade. And what they did simply was involve students in choice engage them in the educational process in choice by helping them define uh, the goals for what they want to learn and more importantly, how they want to learn it. And it goes back to what all, something all educators can do is when we think about universal design for learning, a framework that helps teachers with their instructional uh, practices and their instructional delivery, all of that is basically giving kids multiple ways to represent how they learn and multiple ways to choose to engage in how they learn. And when you and I went to school, Kevin, I would argue we had very little of that. You know, we sat into uh, a classroom, uh, probably in rows at the high school level, probably even rows at the elementary level, and it was stand and deliver. Um, the teacher taught it, and if I didn't learn it, that was something, there was something wrong with me. And I think what's what's happening now in some of these innovation spaces, Fairmont would be a great example, so would Lindsay be a great example, so would Kings Canyon Unified be a great example, and there's others across the state. But I think that the what's happening is that the teachers are being more um, focused on really finding multiple ways to engage students, engagement in things that interest them, having students define how they want to learn, having students choose how they want to demonstrate that learning. And when you do that, what happens for kids and what happens for educators, you get an excitement around learning that's never occurred. And one example would be an alter ed student who had the opportunity to an alternative education students you know they, they go to alternative education because they're struggling in the traditional setting typically they're struggling struggling in the traditional setting for a variety of reasons but one of which is they're not really excited about learning at times they've got a lot of distractions outside of school that often keep them in a in a non-traditional setting and when you ask the student at uh, and an alt ed said, you know, write a two page paragraph on the pros and cons of the Civil War. It's not a really engaging process. But when you give that opportunity for student to do it in a different way, uh, one example would be we had a student that from a previous district of mine who ended up uh, singing, rapping creatively the pros and cons of the Civil War. And when they did that, they did it with passion, they did it with purpose, they, they actually learned. Now, in a traditional way, Kevin, that you and I experienced, that would not be an option. We would have had to write and demonstrate content knowledge and demonstrate understanding in the same way everybody else did, because that's the standard. But when the standard is just a goal and the opportunities to engage in that and demonstrate are in the ch child's hands, you get a lot more excitement, a lot more engagement, a lot more commitment from, from, from students and educators and parents, I would argue. Yeah, and to that point, uh, Matt, I'm also wondering your thoughts on the importance of technology and the new way of educating students, because I know as a California Collaborative for Educational Excellence, technology is also a big part of what you do, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's you know, it's really opened the door. 
um, for a lot of reasons. It's opened the door for educators because you can learn in real time. And if you just look at the basics of what technology has done during the pandemic, we probably, in a lot of places, still were trouble, struggle, struggling to bridge the gap. But more import importantly, the technology is getting so advanced. Assistant uh, devices that assist students in the ability to learn are much more advanced than they were back when I was going to school. And it has opened the door for educators to be able to have students accomplish things that they weren't able to do in the past. And with the onset of uh, artificial intelligence and AI, you know, we're at a we're at a kind of a crossroads with education. We're getting there right now. You can either fight it, fight the um, artificial intelligence and the, the things that it opens up for students, and you can try to keep kids in a traditional setting or a traditional model, or you can open it up and figure out what it's what it would help students be able to do. And uh, technology advancement, there's a book um, that was recently published, the uh, uh, ed Preparing, Educating for the, the Future We Can't pr Predict. And uh, that was written um, not too long ago. And it was written by an author, Thomas Hatch. The Education We Need for a Future We Can't Predict. It was a great book. And I think he underscored the idea that we can't predict education uh, because the technology advancement is 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 high. And what we learned five years ago is obsolete now. But also, um, given what we've experienced with with education, the, you have to educate for a future we can't predict because there's at this point, uh, given with what we experienced with COVID, no one would have thought that we would have been out of school or kids would have been out of school for so long. So the idea that technology is helping bridge that gap, um, helping educators say, yes, we're preparing for, we're educating for today, but we're preparing for tomorrow is really a helpful frame for people to think about as they think about technology. Yeah, and right, as we enter this new age of education, I'm also uh, fascinated in your uh, new definition of what it means to offer students a collaborative education because, you know, as you've mentioned before, traditional learning experiences and models doesn't work for all students. So what does that mean to give students collaborative education choices and experiences today in your view? Sure. I love that question because it's, it's twofold. It has implications for collaboration between teacher and student. How do I collaborate with my student, with my families, with my community in such a way that I can create a sense of belonging? I can create a sense of understanding is what being asked. But I, I, the other way, the other option here is something that people don't talk about as often. It's the collaborative education between educators that's required to enable students to achieve what they, uh, their goals and their dreams. And, and that is, is, does not happen as readily. So when you think about the basic structure between teacher and student, when, it, when a teacher shows up to, to his or her classroom and they have 30 different kids, and if you're at the secondary, it could be from 180 to 200 plus that are rotating through your classroom. How do I create an environment where stu students may not get their way, but they have an opportunity to get their say in the type of education they're experiencing, where they get a, ch a chance to give feedback um, around what worked for me uh, in my learning today, what didn't work for me. Uh, do I feel safe 
uh, at school? Do I have the opportunity to collaborate with administrators? Do I have an opportunity to give you my feedback in, survey, in, a, in a survey form or at least in some type of conversation that occurs regularly uh, in some kind of cadence where I have an opportunity to share with you what it, the system is doing, how it's working for me and working against me. But more importantly, it's the collaboration between teachers. If teachers, teachers often have prep time, Kevin, as you and I remember, they have preparation time defined in their workday that really gives them the opportunity to prepare their materials, to do the deep learning that's required to prepare their instruction for the next day. What they don't often have is collaboration time, time for me to get with other teachers to talk about student learning, to really answer what is it we want students to be able to do, know and be able to do. How will we know that they learned it? What will we do when students when learning doesn't take place? And what will we do when learning has already occurred? Really, the four questions of a professional learning community are often neglected in the collaboration conversation between teacher and student. They think of it as it's just between teacher and students. It's not. It's teacher-student. More importantly, it's between educators. How educators come together to create a collaborative environment for students is oftentimes missed. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to that point, Matt, I'm curious. What's your definition of a great teacher? And what do you think uh, teachers uh, need to know about the value that they bring to education that they sometimes neglect to realize how important they are in our societal ecosystem? So in your view, what makes a great teacher? Yeah, that's a great question. I really love that. And it's not, it seems like a simple answer and it's not, there's not a simple answer to that, but I can tell you um, a great teacher creates a sense of belonging for kids in the classroom. It, it's not as, it, it's not their, their competency level. It's not how much they know about education and how about they know about their content. I think sometimes we get um, education gets, um, <clears throat> gets uh, a little bit distracted with, well, what do they know about math or what do they know about literacy? Um, do they know how to teach reading? We can teach those things. We can learn those things as adults and educators. What we can't learn and what doesn't come often natural is the ability to care, the ability to show um, uh, you know, feeling, the ability to be vulnerable, the ability to have um, humility, the ability to show up with students and say, you know what, I. I love and I care for you enough that I'm going to create an environment that you want to be a part of. And that's going to take me a lot of work. Those soft skills that teachers oftentimes don't have because don't bring or don't focus on because they're so focused on, do I know my content? Have I, do I understand the standards? Do I understand the mechanics of teaching that we forget? And I think the best teachers the ones that really are able to do this work and last the longest show up with a degree of um, humility and create a sense of belonging. And they have a sense of vulnerability to them. Like, I don't know it all. I'm as much here to learn from your experience as students as you are to learn from me. And in the meantime, while they're doing that, they're learning the profession of teaching. They're learning from their colleagues. So their ability to absorb and willingness to learn 
and come with with a growth and a learning mindset is really what sets them apart. But for me, and I imagine for you, Kevin, I imagine for your listeners, the teachers that they remember the most are not the ones that were the, the best at content. The teachers they remember the most were the ones that made them feel special about being in school. And for me, that's that's what sets a quality teacher apart from the rest. Yeah, and Matt, I'll give you a quick story about uh, one of my favorite uh, memories uh, from one of my uh, educational sort of influences. So, uh, Matt, as you know, I uh, was born with what's called uh, spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy. Uh, simply means that I, I don't have enough oxygen in my legs to walk normally. And Matt, I actually found out at the age of nine that I wouldn't uh, be able to walk for the duration of my life because of the severity of my disability, but I truly believe, Matt, that uh, inclusion is the gateway to independence and the changing tra trajectory uh, point of my life actually happened uh, the day uh, I was to start my fourth grade year of elementary school. Uh, so I found out in the summer of 1998, Matt, that I wouldn't be able to walk for the duration of my life. I was nine years old at the time, and the day after I found that out, I returned to school the next day from the hospital, and I was called down to the principal's office, and uh, Dr. Carol Cruley was my middle school principal man, and uh, mm. she knew that I was headed to London the previous day, and uh, she knew the the reason why I was headed there, uh, to be told that I wouldn't be able to walk for the duration of my life. So the next day when I got to the principal's office, she had a, a big space in the middle of her office uh, for my wheelchair. And uh, everyone assigned to my educational file, Matt, from uh, teachers to social workers to therapists were a part of this meeting. And my parents were also there. And I went through the story of what Dr. Carey had told me the previous day about not being able to walk for the duration of my life. And then at the end of the story, Dr. Krulis stopped me and she said, the only limitations on your life are the artificial ones that you place on yourself personally. And that was sort of the turning point in my life. So education has played a huge, huge part of my life. So I just wanted to share that story with you this afternoon yeah that's a beautiful story kevin thank you for sharing that with me and that's a perfect example of an I, educator who that's a quality educator yeah absolutely and you know matt i also wanted to get your thoughts on educational competition and really where you think um uh, uh, public schools are in the conversation of providing in equitable edu education as opposed to private or charter schools. So how can we make sure that students who attend public schools still get, get a quality and equitable education considering the educational competition that's out there today? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I love that. I love that question. You know, because right now, when you think about um, public schools, uh, public schools are sitting in the vortex 
of conflict right now. When you think about the political views around what public schools are doing and not doing, you think about the personal views that parents may have, and they're on opposite sides of the spectrum. You think about student voice and where it sits in relationship to public schools. Public schools have never felt more pressure, more attacked, um, more inept uh, to be able to deliver what they uh, aspired, many educators aspired to, to get into the profession for. And I think we all entered education, at least as I reflect on my, my own education, on I wanted to be able to give students what they need. And oftentimes the barriers that prevented me from being able to provide an equitable education were not barriers that I had in my, uh, as an educator myself. Um, they were oftentimes barriers that were created by the system trying to eliminate barriers. The, and what I mean by that is, you know, when we think about students with disabilities and we think about an equitable education, I, I have my um, MA in special education. I, my first job was a fifth grade teacher. My second was uh, working in a self-contained uh, classroom with four, five, sixth grade students with disabilities. I moved on to moderate, severe uh, disability service and uh, ability service. And it was uh, it was a, an eye-opening experience. And what I quickly realized was, boy, in my aspirational desire to provide my students an equitable education, I often found that the barriers within the system itself prevented me from providing equitable opportunities to them. One of one of which is and just getting them as simply on the uh, general education's uh, attendance roster. You know, if, if something as simple as who does this child belong to? Well, this, this child belongs to all of us. This child sits on the general education roster for a fifth grade teacher. I'm designed as a support to make sure that I support that teacher to reduce the and eliminate barriers that might prevent that child from achieving the equitable outcomes they so, so deserve. And yet, even within the system that I was in, the student was rostered on my roster. And this ownership of responsibility for that student was perceived to be mine and mine alone. And often special education practitioners experience that. And they find themselves, well, why is that? Well, that's because the system uh, requires a cap to the, in most cases, to teachers' rosters. And if you put students with disabilities, you add to the cap. And sometimes that creates a situation where someone has to be paid or compensated for that. And so not to get into the myriad of the weeds of it, but if equitable education is supposed to be designed to give every student what they he or she needs, then my answer to that is the things that are preventing it are often the system structures that create it. Yeah, and you have to break those down. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Ahmad, before you got the current current role that you're in, I know that you've got a myriad of experiences from being a superintendent of a school district to a fifth grade teacher, as you said, to a, a assistant principal. So you've, you've certainly got a gamut of experience in a variety of different roles. Uh, and that, when you look at the quality of education today in terms of the challenges that still exist. You know, I'm thinking about in certain states in America, teachers are told by the government what they can and cannot say in a classroom or can and cannot teach. 
So I'm, I'm curious, Brad, to ask you, what sort of challenges do you think exist uh, from a broader scale as we educate our kids? And what do you think we should uh, devote more resources to continuing this conversation on how to solve some of these challenges? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I see it across. I used to work prior to your point, Kevin, prior to um, the current role I'm in. I worked at uh, with WestEd, which is a national nonprofit organization that works with um, educators across the country. I had the luxury of working in the National Center for Systemic Improvement, where I worked with 29 states who were really focused on um, improving outcomes for their low-performing school systems. So I had an opportunity to really work and see a myriad of approaches that states were using and and the, and the way that they approached that often were um, constructed out of the policies and politics of the current um, state leadership for that matter. But here's something that I saw and experienced that was common across every state. They were trying to fix schools. And that right there, you can't fix schools. You can't fix people. You can't fix students. You can help people and students learn to improve. And you can help systems learn to improve. And so the next shiny object and the next quick fix that states were using and they were pumping money into the next, uh, the next best thing, and all in an aspiration and a race to fix schools was contrary to the idea of how you fix and transform schools. I came from a district that was uh, is nationally recognized now, wasn't back when I was started, as a transforming district. Uh, we experienced a transformation uh, as a district, but, it, but we were highly dysfunctional, one of the lowest performing school districts in the state of California at the time. Um, we didn't get there because we tried to fix uh, the adults, uh, fix the students, fix the families, fix the community, fix uh, the state. We didn't get there. We got back to basics. And that's what I would argue where states need to, where states need to go, back to basics. What is it that teachers need to be able to teach? And what do students need to be able to learn? And we, we, we get rid of the, the noise and the, and the uh, attraction to pumping money into things that uh, sound great and may um, add to the resume of, of many of the policymakers that are trying to create solutions. And we get back to the things, the nitty gritty of what it takes to really transform a school. And that means you have to have three things. You've got to have teachers with a foundation of collaboration. They've got to be able to collaborate in a structured process in a structured way. You've got to have robust uh, interventions for students who need them, when they need them, uh, real-time interventions that are evidence-based. And you've got to have a high-quality instructional framework. You've got to have a way for teachers to talk about instruction and for administrators to talk with teachers about instruction and for coaches and teachers to talk about with classified about instruction so that they all can talk the same language so they can zero in on what's working and what's not working and right now in education i see a lot of independent contractors you know not by choice but because this is that's what the system does it creates independent contractors and until we create systems by nature that force um, more 
collaboration by team and collaboration by team i mean teachers and community and families and schools we're not going to we're not going to get to a place where we actually can transform schools we're going to be on this perpetual um uh, uh hamster wheel of trying to fix the system that cannot be fixed with money it cannot be fixed with um with accountability it cannot be fixed with compliance it cannot be fixed with plans the only way to transfer schools it can only be fixed by the people within it with a willingness and ability to do the right work on behalf of kids and until you eliminate the the tethers that anchor them from being able to do that you're not going to be able to fix schools yeah and let's uh talk about what one of the key pillars of that and you know that's improving the communication and the relationship building between the school community, the teachers, the administrators, and the people who run schools, and the parents, because I, I think it's a, a, a critical lifeline between the two in order to make sure that students uh, really uh, maximize their school learning and educational potential. So let's talk about improving communication between parents and the school community and what you think needs to go into that process as well you know a part, a part of the challenges that i've experienced with when communities are disengaged from the educational system is they don't the educational system doesn't design with uh, with engagement they, we're not communicating and developing the relationships in a way that really the community needs. So I'll give you an example. Most schools, when they think about uh, how they engage with their communities, if you were to ask them to name five things that they do to engage their community, you're going to hear five of the most common things. You're going to say, you're going to have schools say, well, we have uh, back to school nights. We have open houses. We have theater productions, we have performances, we have fundraisers. You're going to hear most of those being the mechanism for which we communicate the value of what we what we do and of which we relate with with parents. Most parents, that is a passive way of engagement. That is, I show up and I receive something from you. I'm getting something from you, whether it's entertainment or information. If you ask parents to describe most of their back to school nights, they'll say they went into a classroom. The teacher told them what was expected of their students and what happens to their students if they get in trouble. And most schools will define that as communication and relationship building for parents. That's not it. It's got to be active engagement where the parent comes to the school and actually makes a contribution for something. They actually offer you something and provide you with something that you need from them whether it's um, what their perspectives are, what they need at home to help their child read, what are they lacking in resources, uh, what do they think about your school and what how it can get better. Somehow, we have to shift the education mindset from being passively engaged and calling it active engagement to be actively engaged where the parent shows up and says, this is what I need. How incredible would it be if a parent showed up to back to the school night and the teacher engaged them and said, tell me about how your kids learn. Tell me how your kids learn best at home. What kind of resources do you have to be able to help them? Let me think about what I can do to meet your needs versus the rules and the standards and what they're required to learn. I think we just got to think about different. Yeah, absolutely. And 
you know, uh, selfish for a minute, I wanted to, to ask you this question because, you know, uh, based on my personal experience of growing up in an educational system with, with a disability, you know, I, I think that students with disabilities can provide the educational system with a different way of, or a different perspective of looking at things. So tell me, I know we've talked uh, about it throughout our conversation, but I wanted to formalize it into a question and ask you, how can we make sure that students with disabilities can also have a competitive advantage? And I'll give you an example. Uh, so now I graduated college 14 years ago. And when I graduated college, uh, you know, part of uh, my uh, uh, requirements to graduate, Matt, was that I had to uh, complete an internship. And uh, I went to school and I have a journalism degree in uh, new, media, new media and communications. But one of the struggles that we had when I was graduating college was convincing news directors to give me an actual shot at an actual internship so that I could get the practical experience uh, to get a job. In fact, when I graduated college, news directors would look at me and say, you, you're an energetic person with a lot of enthusiasm for our business, but because of your disability, we view you as a liability if we put you into the field of journalism and let you cover stories on your own. So the question for you, Matt, is how can we make sure that students with disabilities are granted a competitive advantage inside and outside of the classroom? So when they're done their educational experience or while they're still in it, they can get all of the competitive advantages of their non-disabled counterparts to ensure that they have a wholesome educational experience. Yeah, well, that's a great question. I, I really appreciate your story too, Kevin, and what you offered and the experiences you had. And it, that's, you know, it's unfortunate and unfortunately not uncommon uh, what you described around, you know, having aspirational goals and not being seen by those in the profession as uh, being able to or being capable of um, delivering on whatever it is that they need in that particular position. You know, I think it starts with, first it starts with education and educating those outside the field of K-12, um, what we're trying to achieve for our students and our students with unique abilities and incentivizing, whether it has to be through uh, dual enrollment courses that have partnerships with job embedded learning for students with disabilities, or whether it comes through uh, some other mechanism, putting, putting students with disabilities as an asset-based instead of a deficit-based employment option. And you have a lot of uh, uh, students with disabilities and a lot of unique programs that are being created that are giving students those one-ups. I can think of a unique pro program right now in the central ability called Target. And it's a partnership between a local district and uh, California State University Fresno 
or students with this students with unique abilities go to post-secondary education to learn a skill set to be employable and part of the obligation when they go through that program is that they do find some level of employment and most oftentimes that level of employment occurs at the university system because they're in those job embedded um, experiences and they're getting to understand. And so the employers are getting an opportunity from the, from the post-secondary to see, oh, these students can do a lot more than I thought they could do. I'm gonna employ them as well. And there's, it's most times we find resistance. Um, from the whether it comes from workability programs or or working during your school and you have a, an educator who's responsible for going out and getting employment opportunities and setting it's oftentimes the education opportunities that that student brings to the employer the employ, employer doesn't see the assets that having a student with unique abilities brings to the table had that employer employed you Kevin you would have inspired and brought a level of interest from other people with unique abilities to that and the aspirational goals of others that say because you're there I can do that would have um, quadrupled just by the nature of you being there and being able to share your stories and that helps the economy that helps the community that helps the family yeah absolutely and you know my, my final question for you is a two-parter I'm fascinated to ask you what brings you the most hope for the future of education. And when you look at your own personal and professional legacy, Matt, how do you want that to be defined? Well, those are two good ones. I'll be quick. Um, I'm most hopeful about what education has today because we are at a uh, an inflection point and we have no choice but to solve education by coming together and working together. The, educate if it continues to go the way it's going and what we experience continues we're going to have a really hard time encouraging uh future educators to buy into the the experience of being an educator and i believe that education has an opportunity right now to come together as practitioners and solve problems together. And I think you're seeing more and more states, to your point, Kevin, your last question about collaboration being a, being a really interesting point of, of addressing the needs. You've got to get those closest to the work, solving the problems of the day. You can't have those closest to the work, furthest away from policy development, furthest away from solution seeking. You've got to have those boots on the ground involved in the, the problem solving and you'll get solutions. And for me, I just hope that, you know, I don't even think about, about my personal and professional legacy, but I hope that when people think about what I bring to the table, I bring a, I bring a unique ability to um, connect with people, um, inspire people to do their best work, uh, so that they can do the best work on behalf of kids. So when they think of, you know, something that Matt, Matt could offer, he was a good educator about enabling us as a team to do the best work on behalf of kids. And as the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence, that's what we do as a team. We, we inspire adults and we support adults so that those who are closest to the work can do their best work on behalf of kids so that they can thrive and be them, their best selves in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Matt, tell me if people want to get connected to, to the uh, California Collaborative for Educational Excellence, what's the best way they can do that? 
Sure. The, the best way is to go to our website. It's ccee-ca.org. So ccee-ca.org. And that website, there's a subscri subscribe button at the bottom. You subscribe to all of our information and all of our listserv. You can find out a myriad of things that we're doing uh, within our state, within our uh, uh, with our state partners, and that's the best way to get a hold of us. Well, fabulous, man. As you I can tell, we share a mutual passion for moving the needle of progress forward when it comes to the field of uh, cooperative and uh, inclusive education. So I want to thank you for your good work to uh, give all students in the state of California an equal, equal and equitable shot at a promising future, my friend. Your work in the space of education and time on my behalf is most appreciated this afternoon, and I want to thank you for engaging in conversation with me. It's most appreciated. My pleasure, Kevin. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me.